Jesus said to the Pharisees, There was a rich man who dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day. And lying at his door was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. When the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld, where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am suffering torment in these flames. Abraham replied, My child, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime, while Lazarus likewise received what was bad. But now he is comforted here, whereas you are tormented. Moreover, between us and you is a great chasm established to prevent anyone from crossing who might wish to go from our side to yours or from your side to ours. He said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they too come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He said, Oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Then Abraham said, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. I suppose the obvious, sensible way to go about this, preaching this gospel, would be to speak about the poor. Right? That seems to be the central image in the gospel. Uh, what happens with this rich man who steps over Lazarus every day and ends up in what ostensibly seems to be hell, ends up in hell because of it. Uh, but to be honest, this, this gospel has troubled me for years, and what really troubles me is not actually the relationship between wealth and poverty, which is important. It's very important in the gospel, right? Uh, the gospel makes clear to us that wealth is spiritually dangerous, right? And it, it obliges us, obliges us to care for the poor in such a way that our salvation depends on it. But what, what has always troubled me about this gospel is the dialogue that takes place between the rich man and Abraham here at the end of the gospel, where the, the rich man seems to accept his situation, right? Abraham has told him, you received your good things in this life and you chose the good things of this world. And so now 
Lazarus has the good things in the next world and you will suffer. And man seeming to accept this fate says, well then please send him to visit my brothers, my five brothers, so that, uh, so that they may be warned lest they come to this place of torment. And this seems to me uh, a reasonable request and I'm actually even a little bit moved by the man realizing that he's essentially fallen into eternal perdition, having this one movement of, of actual genuine altruistic concern for his brothers. Well, at least go warn my brothers so they don't end up where I am. Which, by the way, this seems to me to be very similar to the whole plot of A Christmas Carol, right? <laughs> that uh, you know, Marley comes back from the dead to warn Ebenezer Scrooge of, his, of where his greed is leading him. But what really ooh, troubles me is Abraham's response. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the trouble is, uh, the rich man also had Moses and the prophets, and that apparently wasn't enough of a warning for him to live righteously and to avoid torment. And so he says, yeah, but if somebody comes back from the dead and, and speaks to them, then they'll repent. And what Abraham says, and of course this is coming from the mouth of, of our Lord Jesus, so it's not just Abraham saying it, this is a parable, this is Jesus saying this. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if somebody should rise from the dead. And what he seems to be saying is, your brothers have everything they need to know how to live just as you had everything you need to know how you live. And if they can't believe, or if they won't believe, Moses and the prophets, then there isn't anything that can be done. There isn't anything that can be revealed to them that's going to make them believe. Even if, and as Christians, of course, they should set off bells and whistles in our head, even if someone should rise from the dead, that's not gonna make them believe. And the reason this troubles me is because uh, I can identify in myself, and I'd be willing to bet that at least 98% of you can identify in yourselves, a desire for more proof, right? Some sense that if, uh, if, I could, if I could just have one miraculous experience, if I could have one undeniable sign that God is real, that heaven is real, that hell is real, whatever, if I could just have one irrefutable piece of evidence then I could, that could change everything for me and I could really live differently. I could really become a saint. So this has always been the, the dynamic that's arisen in my heart when I read this gospel passage. And lately, to tell you the truth, I've been thinking a lot about faith, right? I'm preparing, I'm preaching a little uh, course, or I'm teaching a little course on the virtue of faith this fall. Uh, I've been reading with my students at school the Introduction to Christianity by Cardinal Ratzinger. And uh, I'm gonna draw heavily from this, and I hope it will be edifying for you. If not, hopefully you'll have the virtue of patience uh, as, I, as I explain some of this. So the, the Introduction to Christianity, which is the most misleadingly titled book uh, that you can find, because it sounds like it's sort of a primer for those who are new to Christianity, and it's actually pretty dense theology, but it's built on the structure of the Apostles' Creed, right? The Apostles' Creed, uh, which is this ancient profession of faith, in which we say, I believe in, I, you know, and that's the structure that I believe in all these statements about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the first 60 pages of his book, he asks the question, what does it mean to say I believe? 
So obviously, Ratzinger thought, if we're, gonna, if we're going to investigate the creed, the statement of what it is that we believe, we should, we should investigate what it means to even say, I believe, which is, of course, an investigation about what is faith, what is belief. And the, it says the first thing we want to notice is we may take it for granted that our religion is primarily a system of belief, but we shouldn't take that for granted. It's actually not necessarily self-evident that religion is a matter of belief. He says if you look at the ancient world, if you look at pagan religion, pagan religion really had more to do with following prescribed rituals. And I don't think that uh, whether you believed in the myths or not was really central to that religion. What, what, what anybody cared about is do you, do you offer the sacrifices that you're supposed to offer? He says the Jews would really have considered themselves primarily uh, sort of constituted by the law. That they were given a law to live by and that this was what really marked them off and set them off from, from the rest of the peoples. Only the people of God has God taught how to live. And so we have a religion that's about ritual, we have a religion, a religion about law. And so when Christianity arrives and we, we see that Christianity is primarily, in the first place, a matter of belief. Now, I won't, I won't uh, go through in detail the 60 pages that he has about I believe, but I'll, I'll summarize the, the problem that he identifies as this. He says, uh, to believe is to take a fundamental stance towards reality that says that Everything that I can see is not all that there is. And what's more, the realer thing and the thing that gives meaning to my life, the thing that I, the, that's the only thing that I can stand on as firm ground, is something that I cannot see, that I can only entrust myself to. Right, it, says the, the, it says God is essentially invisible, which doesn't mean that he's only, we can't see him now, but if we had enough information, or if we could uh, you know, unlock enough secrets of the universe, we could see God. He said, God is essentially invisible, right? It's in his essence. And we are essentially seeing creatures, right? Our world is essentially defined by what we can hold in our hands, by what we can prove, by what we can test, by what we can analyze. And he says, not only is God not analyzable by us in that sense, we can't, we can't hold him in our hands. We can't, uh, we can't submit him to testing. We can't probe him. He's also somebody that we never can do that to because in his essence, he is invisible. And yes, he gives us signs. Yes, he interacts with us in history. Yes, he becomes, in a sense, visible in Jesus Christ. Yes, he is substantially present here to us in the Eucharist. But if we pretend that that solves the problem, we're playing semantic games. Yes, Jesus really is present to us in the sacrament. So in a sense, God has become visible, but that doesn't really solve the problem of the fact that when we look at the Eucharist, when we taste the Eucharist, we are not really seeing God as God. We're receiving God who comes to us under sacramental signs. And so what we're left with is this, this fundamental struggle, right? To say, my religion is a matter of belief, and belief means entrusting myself to something that I cannot prove and that in its essence cannot be proven. I think we can start to see some of the sense of what Jesus is saying. That uh, we're, we're wrong if we think that if we had just a little more proof, or if we had just one undeniable experience, as if there is such a thing as an undeniable experience, 
that belief would then be easy for us. Because no matter what God gives us, no matter what we see or hear or experience, there is no escaping the fact that the fundamental question that lies before all of us, and I mean the fundamental question, is do I entrust myself to this world that I can see, or do I entrust myself to a world that I cannot see? And by the way, this other world is a theme that comes up a lot in Luke. It's been coming up a lot in the last few weeks, right? Last week we had the, uh, the parable of the unjust steward that gets praised for his prudence. And Jesus says that the children of this world are much more prudent about preparing for the future than the children of light. Right? And he, he tells us to make friends with dishonest wealth so we can make friends for ourselves and prepare an eternal dwelling for us, right? Uh, and this is, this is a theme in Luke that, uh, that in a sense we use the gifts that we're given here to build up treasures in the other world, treasures that we can't see now. Right? So he wants us to take the gifts that we have, right, the time, our, our talents, our treasure, you know, the, uh, the typical time, talent, treasure, thing, all these things that the Lord has given us. He wants us not to hoard them and to make a comfortable life for ourselves here, but he wants us to give them away in service of others and in service of the kingdom so that we can build treasure in heaven. But again, the fundamental problem is that we can't see treasure in heaven. Now, the last thing that I'll say from Ratzinger, and there's, there's so much more that I could say, and if, if you want to hear me say more, take the class. Uh, but uh, was that shameless? No, I, that was, no, it was fine. It was good. Uh, he also says that ultimately, because faith, because we are seeing creatures who are asked to entrust ourselves to something that we cannot see, Belief is not simply an intellectual reality. I can't simply deduce truths about the faith in my head and have that be it. The faith is about conversion. The faith is about daily turning away from this, uh, this temptation I have to live for this world and to entrust myself to that one. And he says because our tendencies, because our human nature as seeing creatures never changes, never goes away, the need for daily conversion, the need to daily turn away from those tendencies and to entrust myself to the next world, to the other world that actually gives meaning to my life, he says that is the nature of faith. Faith is a conversion, right? That we cannot really understand until we entrust ourselves to what we're asked to believe. In a sense, we cannot really go deeper in our faith until we step out and live faithfully. And this is important, brothers and sisters, because it's one thing to give intellectual assent to a series of propositions. It's one thing for me to stand up here and I'll tell you what we believe, and you say, yep, that sounds good to me, I believe that. But there, is, there are definitely going to come times in our lives, all of us, whether it be in our families, in our relationships, in our work, there are going to become times where we have to choose between this world that we can see and the other world that we cannot, but which we believe or are supposed to believe actually sustains us and gives our life meaning. Because we, you know, we do hope for a new heaven, a new earth at the, end, at the fullness of time, but at least for now, this world and that world are actually kind of constantly at war with each other. And there will come times where I have to choose between the goods that this world has to offer, whether it be wealth or reputation or power or pleasure, whatever it is, where I have to choose between those and the goods of the next world, building up my treasures in heaven. And that, brothers, that's really where, that's where the rubber meets the road. And if we think that we can avoid 
those things. If we think we can have our cake and eat it too, if we think we can uh, sort of have all the goods that this world has to offer and not have to sacrifice any of them uh, and still have the goods of the next world, we're kidding ourselves because that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you're going to be my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow after me. If you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sisters for the sake of my name, then you're not worthy of my kingdom. He's, he's really done everything he can to make sure that we know that, hey, if you follow me, you are going to have trouble in this life. You're going to have to make sacrifices. And so it could look like anything in your lives. It could be about uh, what we do with our wealth and how much we give to the poor, right? Uh, when we look at it as this struggle between the visible and the invisible world, we can actually see the sense, I think, of why Jesus seems to speak so often about wealth. You know, um, Chesterton said, this is a paraphrase, he said, you know, referring to the, the image of the camel going through the eye of the needle. He says, uh, he says, I know manufacturers have been trying to come up with bigger and bigger needles, and biologists have been trying to produce smaller and smaller camels, right? But if we take what Jesus says to mean the least it could possibly mean, it means that to be rich is to be in peculiar danger. And why? It's because the more of the goods that we have in this world, right? Wealth, power, pleasure, prestige, the more we have of the goods of this world, the more it costs us, the more risk we seem to be taking by choosing the goods of the next, right? I can tell you one way that it looks like in my life as in, t in 10 years of running a high school, I have over and over and over again been faced with a choice between prestige or higher enrollment or a better bottom line of financials versus being faithful to our gospel mission. And when I stand in that moment, it is a matter of faith, right? Which, which world do I want to build up? Do I want to build my treasures or our treasures in heaven, or do I want to build them here on earth? So I don't really know what this choice looks like for, in your, uh, looks like for you. Uh, I would say this, if, if there is something that you have been feeling drawn towards, maybe for a long time now, some, some way that you feel called to step out and trust, and to live a life of more radical faith, but, but you're afraid of what it's going to cost. Maybe what the Lord is calling you today is to step out in faith, right? Because if we struggle with belief, if we struggle with being faithful, if we struggle with living the gospel, the answer is not to look for more signs. The answer is not to look for more definitive proof because definitive proof is always going to be elusive to us because God is not the sort of thing that we can lay hold of and uh, definitively prove. Deeper faith, deeper fidelity, the ability to live the gospel, the ability to, to really invest in the next world, not just in this one, it is always going to come, it's always going to involve the will. It's always going to be an act of the will to believe, to entrust myself uh, to the gospel. And that's what the gospel calls us to do more today. Uh, to step out and entrust ourselves more deeply so that we can understand what it is that we cannot hold in our hands and prove.